This podcast is based upon a lecture given to the first year course, Introduction to English Language, at the Faculty of English in the University of Oxford. My name is Simon Horobin, and I specialise in the history of the English language. And the topic that I'll be introducing in this podcast is language and history. And the message I want to get across is simple. Language changes over time. To demonstrate the truth of that claim, I want to look at three examples. The first is concerned with spelling, the second with punctuation, and the third with the meanings of words. Let's start with spelling. Here's a headline from the independent newspaper about a story which was broadcast across the world on the 23rd of October 2010. Jane Austen could write, but her spelling was awful. The article followed comments by the editor of an online edition of Jane Austen's unpublished manuscripts about Austen's sloppy attitude to spelling and punctuation. There was clearly considerable shock in the response, and the story was repeated by numerous newspapers and TV news broadcasts. You'd think from the level of outrage that the spelling of her manuscripts was completely anarchic, and that she was a kind of 19th century Nigel Molesworth. In fact, the only marked and consistently visible spelling mistake found in these manuscripts is Jane Austen's consistent use of E-I for the E sound in words like believe, which she spells B-E-L-E-I-V-E. Shock, horror. This shows that Jane Austen apparently didn't know the best known and most simple of all spelling rules, I before E, except after C. But while this spelling may be wrong according to our modern spelling, was it wrong according to the standards of Austen's time? She was not alone in using this spelling. The OED records several instances under its entry for believe. In a letter of 1716, Lady Montague writes, I find that I have a strong disposition to believe in miracles. B-E-L-E-I-V-E. Examples like this indicate that it would be anachronistic to view Jane Austen's spellings as errors. Instead, we should view these as alternatives that would have been considered perfectly acceptable at the time. What this tells us is that our modern rule, I before E, except after C, must be a more recent convention, so we can't judge Jane Austen because she failed to apply it. Another issue overlooked by the press who leapt to Jane Austen's condemnation is the fact that these were unpublished manuscripts. In the 19th century, as today, printers and editors were responsible for ensuring consistency and accuracy of spelling and punctuation. What's more, one of the reasons why we think of the 19th century as having a fixed spelling system identical to our own is that modern editors of 19th century texts impose standard modern English spelling on the texts that they are editing. This helps to enshrine the idea that modern English spelling is the only correct way to spell and that differences found in manuscripts from this period are errors. In fact, we should recognise that standard English spelling is the result of a historical process throughout which variant spellings were selected, while others were excluded. Just because modern British society considers incorrect spelling to be a marker of stupidity and sloppiness, doesn't mean that this was true of the 19th century, or any other historical period. In the Middle Ages, 
because Latin functioned as a standard written language, there was no standard English spelling system at all. As a result, people's spellings more closely reflected their own pronunciation, so that instead of there being just one acceptable way to spell a word, there were often hundreds. There are some 500 recorded spellings of the word through found in the Middle Ages, some of which are extremely exotic, like, for instance, D-R-O-W-G-H, or Y-H-U-R-G-H-T, or T-R-G-H-U-G. The lesson to be learned from this example is that spelling is an aspect of language that changes, or at least one that has changed over time to give us our present-day standard. While standard English spelling is one of the most fixed and easily regulated aspects of present-day English, it too contains a number of variants. For instance, would you write judgment with an E or without? Do you spell dispatch, D-I-S, or D-E-S? How do you spell minuscule, M-I-N-U-S-C-U-L-E, or M-I-N-I-S-C-U-L-E? In fact, in each of these cases, both spellings are found in the OED as alternatives. So both are correct. The choice between one or the other is personal or a matter of editorial convention. Why does one spelling have to be correct and the other an error? Why should correct spelling matter so much? The question of the value of spelling brings me on to my second example, punctuation. The huge success of Lynn Truss's book, Eats, Shoots and Leaves, which has sold more than a million copies, is a good example of how minor features of written English can be considered of huge social significance. This book is a rant about the falling of grammatical standards and how the misplacement of the apostrophe is heralding the end of civilization as we know it. One reviewer writing in the Daily Express wrote a bit, Lovers of good English have thought of ourselves as isolated outposts. Lynn Truss has emerged as our champion. Eats, Shoots and Leaves is a rallying cry that's aimed at lovers of English who are concerned with maintaining standards, bringing them together and uniting them under a banner of linguistic correctness to fight the sloppiness and ignorance that they find around them. Not everyone, however, was convinced of the significance of this crusade. Geoffrey Nunberg dismissed it as being like hearing someone warn of grave domestic security threats and then learning that he's chiefly concerned about Canadian sturgeon poaching on the US side of Lake Huron. Other reviewers were sympathetic to the crusade but disputed the rules and principles of punctuation which Lynn Truss was concerned to uphold. The review of the book in The New Yorker writes, The first punctuation mistake in Eats, Shoots and Leaves appears in the dedication, where a non-restrictive clause is not preceded by a comma. It is a wild ride downhill from there. This kind of response in which one prescriptivist argues with another, has been nicely characterised by David Crystal as one kind of zero tolerance being eaten by another.
What Lynn Truss and her supporters, and even her detractors, don't really engage with is the question of whether preserving punctuation rules is actually necessary or possible. Let's consider the apostrophe. Lynn Truss is particularly exercised about the tendency for the apostrophe to be omitted, to the point that she goes around with a marker pen inserting it into signs. She's also appalled by the way that apostrophes are inserted incorrectly, as in the case of the greengrocer's apostrophe, where the apostrophe is used before a plural S ending, so-called because it's thought to be particularly prevalent in greengrocer's signs advertising apples, apostrophe S, or oranges, apostrophe S. But she saves her most vindictive punishment for those people who confuse the neuter possessive pronoun it's with the abbreviation it apostrophe s it is. She says of this, the rule is extremely easy to grasp. Getting your it'ses mixed up is the greatest solecism in the world of punctuation. No matter that you have a PhD and have read all of Henry James twice, if you still persist in writing good food at its best, IT apostrophe S, you deserve to be struck by lightning, hacked up on the spot, and buried in an unmarked grave. But is such condemnation of this common error really warranted? The reason that ITS and IT apostrophe S are frequently confused is easy to understand, as they bring the two major uses of the apostrophe into conflict. In the case of IT apostrophe S, the apostrophe is functioning as a marker of an abbreviation, as it does in can't, won't, and so on. But the apostrophe is also employed as a marker of possession, as in the boy's book, so that it's natural to assume that the neuter possessive, its, should also have an apostrophe. The possessive pronoun, its, first appeared in the 16th century, and confusingly, was originally spelt IT apostrophe S. It's only in the 18th century that the distinct distinction between its and IT apostrophe S that we know today was introduced, and even then there was considerable inconsistency and uncertainty. So we certainly can't look back on a golden age where there was no confusion in the use of its and IT apostrophe S. And if the apostrophe is so crucial in writing, how do we manage perfectly well in speech, where there is nothing to disambiguate between ITS and IT apostrophe S? The reason is, of course, that context alone is usually sufficient. But while Lynn Truss is categorical in her demonisation of people who confuse ITS and IT apostrophe S, and who use the greengrocer's apostrophe. She's more cautious about the use of the apostrophe in plurals of abbreviations, like MPs, or plurals of dates, like the 1980s. Here, she concedes that, although it used to appear in such cases, it's no longer required, even though it still appears in these positions in American usage. But why should dropping the apostrophe in these instances be acceptable, and the others not. Why doesn't she go around correcting these errors? Clearly, there's a double standard here. Essentially, the point seems to be that 
A change that has already happened is acceptable. One that is in the process of happening should be opposed. Because it's not a particularly useful device, and because many people don't understand the rules for using it, the apostrophe is increasingly being omitted in written English. There was considerable furore recently when Birmingham Council decided to drop the apostrophe from its street signs. Here's an article from a local newspaper. They've been a source of utter confusion to school children over the years, and it's a brave adult who can be absolutely certain where to put the little beast. After years spent arguing the finer points of whether King's Heath should be apostrophe S, or even King's S apostrophe Heath, local authority leaders have concluded the safest thing is not to bother at all. Asked whether there might not be a place for apostrophes, Councillor Gregory said, I don't see the point of them. If it was to give more clarity to the people of Birmingham, it might be something we would look at, but I see no benefits at all. The decision was described as absolute defeatism by John Richards, founder of the Apostrophe Protection Society. Now children will go around Birmingham and see utter chaos. If you don't have apostrophes, is there any point in full stops, or semicolons, or question marks? Is there any point in punctuation at all? Councillor Mullaney said, I know I'm opening up a right can of worms here. I have had a lot of people saying, keep the apostrophe, and I know I'm on a hiding to nothing. The apostrophe police will be on to me. But actually, all the council is doing here is following common practice. After all, many street signs and names of places leave out the apostrophe, as do trade names like Barclays Bank or Lloyds Bank or, most recently, Waterstones. Another fact of language change is that words shift their meanings, what's known as semantic change. This tends to be one of the most visible and resisted aspects of language change, prompting numerous letters to newspapers, outraged blogs and tweets. One example that's particularly irritating people at the moment concerns the use of the word literally, in phrases like, he literally exploded with rage, or I was literally gutted, or my mouth was literally on fire. I don't want to single out any particular group for condemnation here, but football pundits can be particularly prone to this construction. So we hear things like, that cross to Rooney was literally on a plate. Or, he had to cut back inside onto his left because he literally hasn't got a right foot. What's curious about this usage is that the word literally here is being used with the opposite meaning, that is, figuratively. What the commentator actually means is, figuratively speaking, he hasn't got a right foot. But while this usage is evidently illogical, does that make it wrong? After all, we perfectly well understand that he doesn't actually mean Rooney's serving up the ball on a plate, or that there are footballers hopping around on one leg. It's not just football reporters that get pulled up for making this error. Nick Clegg, the Deputy Prime Minister, recently got into trouble with his use of the word literally to describe high earners when he said in an interview with the Daily Telegraph, you see people literally in a different galaxy who are paying extraordinarily low rates of tax. Writer and comedian Paul Parry was scathing about the Deputy Prime Minister's slip. 
He told the BBC Radio 4 Today programme, This is probably the worst thing Nick Clegg has ever done. He's just completely misusing the word. It's not about pedantry, it's about communication. The key thing is the word literally is a safe word. We've got a wonderful floral language. You can say that you've got itchy feet, that you'd kill for a cup of coffee, that you'd bring the house down, that you've got a frog in your throat, but ultimately you need to be able to show that words have a literal meaning as well. There's no other word that means literally, and if the word literally's meaning is eroded by all this misuse, then there's nothing to replace it, and we'll get a lot more confusion. The objection that there's no other way of expressing the sense of literally is, of course, nonsense. What about precisely, actually, genuinely, exactly, really, and so on? And, of course, he's ignoring the fact that when people say, I could kill for a coffee, we understand that they're speaking figuratively. Just as we do when they say, I could literally kill for a coffee. It's ridiculous to suggest that if someone says I could literally kill for a coffee, you don't know whether to call the police or not. If we look back at the earliest uses of this adverb, we can see that originally it was used to mean in a literal, exact or actual sense, not figuratively. This is the first sense listed in the OED, with quotations taken from texts written in the 15th century. So, according to the earliest uses of the word, these modern examples are clearly wrong. Notice the not figuratively in the definition. But just because a word was used in a certain way in the 15th century doesn't mean that we should still use it in that way today. After all, many words have changed their meaning since then. In the 15th century, nice meant foolish, shrewd meant evil, silly meant innocent, pretty meant cunning. If you went around today ticking everyone off who used those words in their modern senses, you'd be considered something of an oddity. So why should that be different with literally? In fact, if we take the history of the word completely seriously and consider its etymology, then literally should be used in an even more limited way. Literally is derived from the Latin word litera, meaning a letter, so that it actually means letter by letter. So if we want to be really pedantic about the correct use of this word, then it should only be used to describe something being done letter by letter, copying something out literally. So even our use of the word to mean exactly is a metaphorical extension of this original sense. This sense is listed in the OED, but given the tag rare, so it would be clearly wrong to insist that this is the only current correct use of the word. If we trace the history of the word from this original sense, then we can see that the modern misuse is in fact a development of a series of more gradual shifts. The OED has another sense, 1b, which lists uses of the word where it has been added merely for emphasis. These include examples taken from supposedly great literary writers like Dryden and Pope, and even that careful stylist and terrible speller Jane Austen, whose description of a stormy night has the characters literally rocking in their beds. The difference with these examples is that literally is being used to intensify statements which are true. So Pope writes, Every day with me is literally another tomorrow, for it is exactly the same with yesterday. This is literally true, but the literally is redundant. The next development was for literally to be used as an intensifier for statements which are figurative or metaphorical. 
Given all the fuss that's been attached to this use, you might well think this is a recent development. But in fact, it's first recorded in the 18th century. Given the way that it is frowned upon, you may also be surprised to hear that it actually appears in the OED, although it notes that it's considered colloquial. So sense 1c reads, used to indicate that some frequently conventional metaphorical or hyperbolical expression is to be taken in the strongest admissible sense, virtually, as good as, completely, utterly, absolutely. Now, one of the most common uses, although often considered irregular in standard English, since it reverses the original sense of literally, not figuratively or metaphorically. Despite being marked as colloquial, this sense is supported by quotations from a number of literary writers, including this one from Mark Twain's novel Tom Sawyer. And when the middle of the afternoon came, from being a poor, poverty-stricken boy in the morning, Tom was literally rolling in wealth. Even James Joyce is guilty of this apparent misuse. Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. And the entry in OED also includes more colloquial instances of the kind that we began with. From the Westminster Gazette, we find Mr Chamberlain literally bubbled over with gratitude. The most recent quotation, which is taken from the Herald Times newspaper of Bloomington, Indiana, attests to the kind of prescriptivist response that such uses are frequently met with. OMG, I literally died when I found out. No, you figuratively died, otherwise you would not be around to relay your pointless anecdote. Given that the use of literally to mean figuratively has been known since the 18th century and is found in prominent literary works, we must wonder why it has be recently become the focus of so much scorn. There are websites and books devoted to tracking and scorning this particular use. These people clearly think that they're being clever, spotting an error that no one has noticed and attempting to reverse this pitiful trend towards the misuse of this word. But if the misuse of literally is not original, neither is its stigmatisation. In a style guide published in 1909, titled A Little Blacklist of Literary Faults, Ambrose Bierce quoted the sentence, his eloquence literally swept the audience from its feet and condemned it, on the grounds that it is bad enough to exaggerate, but to affirm the truth of the exaggeration is intolerable. In that Bible of 20th century prescriptivism, known as the Dictionary of Modern English Usage, published in 1926, H.W. Fowler cited a nice example from a newspaper. The climber came through safely, but he literally had to cling on with his eyebrows. And he commented that, We have come to such a pass with this emphasiser, that where the truth would require us to insert with a strong expression, not literally, of course, but in a manner of speaking, we do not hesitate to insert the very word that we ought to be at pains to repudiate. A letter to the editor of the Times in 1949 about the misuse of the word is an early example of the incensed blog posts and irate tweets we find over the web today. Sir, your recent report that a rackets player literally blasted his opponent out of the court suggests that gamesmanship is becoming less subtle. Is not the use of dynamite as out of place in a first-class match as, for instance, the word literally in a metaphor? What these pedants fail to appreciate is that words change their meanings over time, 
and trying to reverse this trend, or even just to halt it, is pointless and misguided. In support of this use of literally, we might point out that it is found in the OED. Although even that risks falling into the trap of taking a dictionary as a prescriptive guide to correct usage, rather than as a descriptive account of language use. The OED includes this use of literally because people use it that way, so it shouldn't be considered evidence that it is in some way approved by a team of lexicographers and so okay to use. I suspect that the reason that so much attention has been drawn to this apparent misuse of literally is that the change in meaning is apparently contradictory, with the result that a word that used to mean not figuratively now means figuratively. But it's not the only example of what linguists call a contronym or autoantonym, that is, a word that's shifted its meaning from one to its opposite. Other examples would include the verb let, which can mean both allow and prevent, if you think of a let in squash or tennis. Or the verb to dust. To dust the TV means to remove the dust. To dust the TV for fingerprints means cover it in dust. Perhaps the objection to literally is that it produces some odd-looking images of people clinging to cliff faces by their eyebrows or footballers hopping around on one leg. How's that different from what's happened with words like really, whose earliest uses mean in reality, in fact, actually, but which subsequently developed into an intensifier, meaning very or thoroughly. When we hear people say, my mouth was really burning, we don't immediately respond with the pedantic, was it? Was it really? What, actually on fire? So, in conclusion, these examples show that language is defined by use and that use changes over time. Students of language observe how people have used language in the past and consider that linguistic behaviour according to the standards of the time. And they don't impose modern sociolinguistics concepts of correctness. Linguistics is a descriptive, not a prescriptive science. That is, linguists are concerned with observing and describing language rather than imposing their own particular beliefs about correct usage. And finally, to return to the point I began with, language change is inevitable. Trying to stop it will literally drive you up the wall. <laughs>